Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, we're going to deal with some startling recent developments in the McKenna Denson case. I'm pleased to have with me for this analysis, Bill Reel. Bill Reel, how are you doing? Wonderful. Grateful once again to sit side by side with you and to dive into some data and to share some thoughts uh, along with yours. Well, great. I think the way to lead into this is probably to talk about what has happened during the past couple of weeks with the McKenna Denson case. As most listeners know, I have spent a number of episodes dealing with this case and her allegations of being raped in a basement room at the Missionary Training Center in 1984 by the president of the MTC, Joseph Bishop. This all started back on Monday, March 19th, 2018. And when I say started, I mean as far as public knowledge of this incident goes. When Mormon Leaks put up an audio recording that McKenna Denson had made when she flew down to Arizona and personally interviewed and confronted Joseph Bishop, her alleged assailant. Do you remember that, Bill? I am obviously familiar with uh, with that original leak and that audio. I'd listened to that twice uh, in my time of kind of dissecting what's going on with this case and uh, having spent some time with McKenna Denson myself, uh, certainly interested in all that's going on with uh, with her lawsuit uh, her civil case with uh, with Joseph Bishop. Well, we'll go back over a few of those things as they come up in the course of our discussion, but I think it behooves us to jump right into the most recent two weeks with regards to this lawsuit that McKenna Denson has and is currently ongoing against the LDS Church for allowing Joseph Bishop to be president of the Missionary Training Center. Their position, McKenna Denson's position, is that the church did or should have known that he was a sexual predator at the time he was made president of the MTC and that therefore the LDS Church is responsible for his conduct and his alleged rape of her at the MTC. In the past couple of weeks, however, things have changed dramatically. In the eyes of many, McKenna has gone from being a saint to being a monster. And what this all has to do with is recent allegations that McKenna Denson has made from late January and early February of this year, 2019. By the way, today's date is May 30th, 2019. But two weeks ago, she went public with allegations that she said happened to her, as I say, back at the last days of January, first days of February of this year, 2019. And those allegations involved three incidents in which she claims to have been victimized. The first incident has to do with an allegation that while she was away from her house, some unknown person snuck into her house and put Drano in her orange juice. When she came back to the house, nobody was there. She took a drink of the orange juice. It burned going down. She was taken to the hospital where she was treated and then released back to her house. The second allegation has to do with Somebody, in the middle of the night, coming out and setting fire to her car, which was parked out in front of her house. The third allegation has to do with her being physically assaulted in front of her house by an unknown assailant, and as a result of which she received a broken nose, 
a broken wrist, and a broken finger. All of those were apparently reported to the police at the time, and she has not gone public with those until the last couple of weeks. As soon as she went public with those, many people who were formerly supporters of her began to question her credibility. Those stories just did not sound like they made a lot of sense to many of her supporters, certainly not all of her supporters. And I don't know if it's a result of those stories being made public, Bill, but in the past week, last week, late last week, I became aware of police reports that were being made available on the internet. And these are police reports related to prior allegations that McKenna has made against different and assorted and actually quite a number of different people. One of the police reports is from 1999 that I've seen, and another of the police reports is from 2004. And what it does is it details a number of these allegations that she has made in the past, and those have been brought to the surface primarily by Mike Norton, who on this past Monday confronted McKenna about it very publicly and very harshly, I think, and then published that on the internet to thousands and thousands of people. The result has been that McKenna's popularity has plummeted and that apparently her attorney now has or will shortly withdraw from representing her in the case because it appears that her case against the church, based upon this allegation of what happened or what she says happened in the basement with Joseph Bishop, has been severely undermined by these recent developments. Your thoughts, Bill? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you as a outside observer who, uh, again, I've had dinner with McKenna. Uh, I, you know, me and my wife and two friends of ours uh, spent the, the, an evening at Sunstone uh, taking her out to dinner, talking to her about the case and her story and trying to uh, be a sympathetic ear to what was going on. Uh, McKenna's also come to southern Utah on at least, I think, one occasion, maybe two, where we uh, we drove around and kind of gave her a tour of, of St. George. Uh, and so I had considered, and, and still do, consider McKenna uh, a friend. But what happened is, as you're pointing out, when the incident on January 30th happened with the orange juice, uh, all of a sudden kind of an eyebrow raises. And I start to think like, wait a minute, this, this just doesn't feel right. And then as you say, you know, within a short time, now her car is on fire. Within a short time, now she's assaulted uh, and ends up with these injuries. And at some point, you start to think like, wait a minute, as you consider her past and as you kind of wrestle internally with all that's going on in this case, you start to become skeptical. And, and then when Mike comes out, and we'll go through some of this, when Mike comes out with his video, a lot of these things aren't new. These are things that I had known. And, and if you and I, I, we'll get into this as well, but McKenna's been fairly open about the things that were known and were sitting on the table that the public knew from the dossier that uh, was leaked uh, when this all first started. We... Uh, in conversations with McKenna, she was open about these issues and saying, yeah, these are some of the things in my past. I'm not a squeaky clean person. Uh, what happened was 
things started to mount and things started to just not feel right. And then suddenly Mike's video comes out and this PF Chang's police report is kind of breaks it open because what they did was they go back into our past and they're listing all of these other things that are going on. And some of these things we didn't exactly know. And, and, and now that time has gone by, uh, there's this opportunity for McKenna to kind of respond to some of this. And Mike is now pursuing other police reports. And there are other people in the background who are reaching out to Mike Norton and saying, hey, chase this down. Hey, chase that down. What we're running into essentially is that when you lay it all on the table, McKenna Denson has had a lifetime of accusations and deceiving people and scamming people. And some of the details around this Joseph Bishop case, namely the orange juice and the Drano, uh, it, 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 the most reasonable, logical conclusion to come to when you understand all the data, at least for me, is that nobody outside of her knowledge poisoned her. But that, that I, again, this is my gut, is that, that she's done this herself or had somebody do this um, in, in order to somehow, in her eyes, make her case stronger. Right. And to help the audience understand some of those comments you just made, Bill, McKenna Denson and I are in regular contact, I would say. Not frequent, but regular contact on the phone. I have never met her. And we have been since, I would say, April of 2018 after I did my first podcast relating to her case and she reached out to me and established contact at that point. McKenna told me in almost real time about these incidents from January and February, the orange juice, the car on fire, the assault in the front yard. She told me shortly after, even maybe the day of or the day after, that's how close in time it was. So I was finding out about these things well in advance of her public disclosure of them two weeks ago. And I speak with you much more frequently than I do with McKenna. And I was telling you about these incidents that she has alleged. And I know that we were sharing misgivings at the time about how this affects her credibility and how we view her credibility as a witness. In other words, can we take her word for things just because she says them? Because these seemed extremely outlandish, extremely bizarre. And as the contents of these police reports became more public, it seemed more and more bizarre. You're right. Everybody, I think, knew that she has a checkered past. I do not think that she has attempted to hide that fact. But it's one thing to have a checkered past that's in the sort of distant past. It's another thing to have that past brought forcefully into the here and now by additional allegations that sound an awful lot like some of the allegations she has made many years ago. Yeah, there are some similarities uh, specifically with poisoned drinks and specifically with poisoned orange juice. There's also some other data points that are deeply concerning as well, things I didn't know. Um, I also want to note too, while you and I have regular conversations and you are informed by McKenna when these events took place recently, at the same time, I also have a very dear friend who also has been trying to help McKenna, um, has sent some cash her way, and by the way, sent her security cameras, which she told him were up and running. And strangely, 
you know, as she has said that she's, you know, came forward about these incidents because of fearing for her life, fearing for her safety. McKenna came forward on these three incidents uh, and she says because she feared for her own safety. And I, and I understand that from like a normal uh, human being being stalked and assaulted by somebody. I get that. But my dear friend sent her a set of security cameras which she said were up and running in her house. And and so there's so much more to the story in that people have sent cash to her, people have loaned her cars, people have put her up in their homes, uh, people have sent her equipment to try and catch whoever it is that's going after her. With so many people trying to help her and to assist her, and, and now to kind of feel like, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. Like this lady has a entire history of deceiving people. And now you have these recent events. Again, I don't blame the, the, the ex-Mormon community. I don't blame the ex-Mormon community for losing trust in her as, as to be honest, I've completely lost trust in her. I don't know, RFM, if we should maybe start. I've got some thoughts kind of running from the very beginning uh, to today, and it might make sense kind of working through that timeline. Can I just go ahead and synopsize a couple of things right now about her credibility, and then you can go back and that'll work out real well? Okay. Uh, The main issues related to her credibility have to do with the fact that she has made multiple allegations of sexual abuse or assault or rape or attempted rape against a number of men over a period of many years. None of those have ended up resulting in convictions. Most of them suffer from the fact that she is able to provide not enough detail to even find the people that she has alleged have assaulted her. And of course, this causes a lot of concern because the very focus of the case against Joseph Bishop is a claim that he sexually assaulted and raped her. So when you look at that situation against the pattern of making allegations against men of rape and sexual assault a number of times, perhaps five times, perhaps six times, I'm not sure what the count is, but it's a fistful over a period of decades, then it tends to make a lot of people rightfully question her allegations about Joseph Bishop. The second thing is that she apparently has made claims against companies or restaurants in order to get money from them, alleging that she was somehow injured by their negligence. She also has a number of convictions, apparently, for crimes involving dishonesty. And by that, I mean uh, shoplifting or some kind of fraud. And those do not help her case either. As I say, most of these things were known, at least in general outline, from the get-go on this case. Most people had a general idea, but I think that most people were willing to put that aside in favor of believing her and even championing her and even donating to her cause because they believed that she was telling the truth. Can I just tell you about this 2004 P.F. Chang report? Okay, because that ends up detailing a lot of things. I'll try and do this quickly. It's about a 72-page police report. I've read through it. Her allegation was that she went to a P.F. Chang 
back in 2004 with a group of other people that there was a cake that was brought out for dessert, that she took some frosting off the cake, that she put it into her mouth, she swallowed it, something scraped going down. It ended up being seven small razor blades, which ultimately she ended up passing after going to the hospital and seeing an attorney and then going back to the hospital again. The seeing the attorney part in between the hospital visits did raise the suspicions of police. And if you go through this police report, what you find is about the first half of it, the police are investigating this as a potential assault in the first degree. Did somebody intentionally put these razor blades in this cake frosting? And so they go, they do a very thorough investigation. They're talking to all the people at P.F. Chang's. They're talking to people who are the servers. They're talking to the people who are in the back room, the cooks. They find out that these cakes are shipped there from the cake manufacturer. They're not made there uh, separately. So they go talk to the cake manufacturer. They find out that before the cakes are sent out initially from the cake manufacturer, they go through a, a metal detector of sorts. Uh, they're put through a microwave. And if there were any metal, it would naturally come to the attention of someone before it leaves PF, excuse me, before it leaves the cake manufacturer, it gets to PF Chang's. They do a similar thing there with a microwave. You would think that somebody would notice it. So they're basically eliminating all these possibilities to the point where if somebody puts it in there, it's probably after it was brought out of the kitchen at the P.F. Chang's restaurant. So they're focusing on the server. They have the server at the table take a polygraph test. He passes the polygraph test. And now all of a sudden, the police are starting to get phone calls from people. And I think one of those people, actually I know, one of those people is identified as being McKenna's ex-husband. Another person wants to remain anonymous. It's a female. It's probably the ex-husband's wife. She seems to know an awful lot about things related to McKenna, as well as a no-contact order she had against the ex-husband. But they are detailing to the police all these different instances that they're saying that McKenna has tried to get money out of people in the past. So naturally, the police start to look at McKenna as having filed a false police report and made a false claim. They bring McKenna back into the police station to confront her about these allegations. Uh, they start off by asking her detailed questions about the night itself, and then they shift to confronting her with their belief that she's the one who actually put the razor blades in the cake. Now, I will tell you that the thing that leaped off the page at me when I was reading this for the first time, which I believe was last Friday, is an allegation that she had made some years before this, this is 2004, these police reports, but they ask her regarding an allegation she had made some years before this against a gentleman in the neighborhood with the first name David about a date rape. And here's what she says. This is from the police report. Now, the reason this jumped out to me is this isn't somebody saying that McKenna said this so much as it is the police report reporting what came from her own mouth. Okay, so technically it is the police saying she said this, and yet it seems to be in a situation where it has a good degree of reliability. The police report says, I asked her where she was raped, and she said it was the day before New Year's Eve in 2000. Okay, so that was the year. I asked her where it occurred, and she said Charleston, South Carolina, and then said Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. They're probably really close together. I don't know South Carolina very well. But then the more important part, I asked if a suspect was arrested and she said yes and said his name was David. She gives the last name. I won't give that here. She said he was a neighbor of hers and they had trouble proving the case 
because he had used a date rape drug. Now here's the line that leaped off the page at me. She said from what they understood, he had been sneaking into her house and putting the drug in their orange juice, but they were unable to prove it. Now you can understand why that stood out to me in the 70 plus pages of police reports, because here's McKenna in 2004 describing an alleged date rape that she suffered in the year 2000, where she's claiming that a neighbor snuck into her house and put the drug in her orange juice. What does that sound like, Bill? Sounds a lot like the recent uh, claim that somebody broke into her house and put a poison into her orange juice. Right. And the problem with this is that it's difficult to believe in the first instance. All right. This is not something that happens to many people on a regular basis. You know what I mean? It is something that we could allow might happen to one person once in their entire lifetime. But when we have two allegations of the same exact kind of M.O., it strains credulity to the breaking point. Yeah, it makes it really hard to give the benefit of the doubt, and especially knowing all the other data, but even standing on its own, it becomes not only highly unlikely, but unbelievable. And then you add it to all the other stuff that's going on. And by the way, we need to add to that another detail, um, which is that back in September of 2018, there are now multiple people who said at that time, McKenna spoke to them about someone trying to put Drano in her orange juice and breaking in. This would be uh, three months before she reports an actual incident occurring on January, was it 30th? I I think so. It was at the very end of January of this year, 2019. January 30th. So four months prior, she is claiming someone else broke into her house and poisoned her orange juice. And then four months later, on January 30th, she actually calls the police and says, someone broke into my house last night and poisoned me with orange juice. Or she calls the ambulance, calls the medical team, and they come to her home. In other words, she has claimed to be poisoned by orange juice, and then four months later actually has an event happen where someone breaks in and poisons her orange juice. And, and now you add that to this line in the P.F. Chang report, and you add it to all the other data, and suddenly what becomes by far the most logical, rational, reasonable conclusion is that all of this is being made up, as Elder Holland would say, out of whole cloth. Hmm. Well, let me go ahead and try and look at this as analytically as I can. You know, I've been an attorney for 29 years, almost 30 years now. Um, I could conceive from the other side of that story that she was telling the people at the Sean McCraney show, the staff, this whole list of claims that she has made Uh, about different people, about different things that have happened to her. Let's say that she mentions about the date rape drug in the orange juice, that at some point in 2000, neighbor had snuck into her house, put this date rape drug in her orange juice. They weren't able to prove it. And then four months later, she goes public. Oh, excuse me. That was September. So from September to when? May? That's even longer. So that's what, four, five, six, seven months or so later, She goes public with these claims from January. I could imagine that if I were listening to her back in September and she's going through this long litany of things and she talks about somebody coming into her house 
putting something noxious in her orange juice. She could be talking about the year 2000, and then she comes forward with it about Drano in her orange juice, and it goes public in May of uh, 2019. I could see maybe them thinking, hey, is that what she was talking about? Was she talking about somebody putting Drano in her orange juice back then? This seems very similar. In other words, the very similarity of the two allegations, which is its own uh, problem, as we've discussed, could lead to a very natural confusion on the part of people at the Sean McCraney show, confusing her telling them about the 2000 incident when it sounds so much like the new allegation she's made. Did that make any sense? No, it makes perfect sense because I thought of the same thing. I thought, you know what? Memory is a tricky thing. And when somebody recalls that something is said, uh, and we find this often in early Mormonism with uh, with the Hurlbut affidavits and other places where people claim something and it's closely connected to something else. So, so suddenly we think we remember reading the Spalding manuscript and we think it was the Book of Mormon and it had the same characters in it. Like this thing happens and we're familiar with it as as deconstructed Mormons. But, but here was my trouble. As I thought about that and all the data, and I think Norton says that there are at least five people who remember her saying that. Again, it starts to get tricky. The more people who remember something being said a certain way, the trickier it is to pin it down on all of them having a false memory and believing the same thing. Now, the argument back might be that they're talking to each other and now they're reinforcing with each other what was said and what wasn't said. The, the trouble is that McKenna's past is so shady that at some point you start to take the side of, say, these five people who maybe have a false memory. But on the other hand, um, again, she has no credibility anymore. And so you start to lean towards like, OK, is it really is it really less reasonable to believe those five people or or is it less reasonable to believe uh, McKenna's story holds up this this solidly. Right, I hear what you're saying. And to make it very clear, at this point, I think that McKenna Denson's credibility is shot. She cannot be trusted in any of her allegations. We cannot simply take her word for what it is that she says happened. So I want to make that point clear. But it is interesting, this cultural phenomenon that's going on with people surrounding this case, people who are interested in this case on one side or the other, and especially those who were formerly ardent supporters of McKenna Denson, is that they believed everything she said, regardless of her history, whatever they knew about her history. And they disbelieved anything that the church or Joseph Bishop or people on the other side said that contradicted McKenna's story. Now, almost overnight, a large body of those people have completely switched sides. Now, they will look at anything McKenna says in the worst possible light and completely disbelieve it. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, no more better example can be given than Mike Norton, who as recently as December of last year was making a videotape with McKenna Denson where they were extremely good friends. And now he has gone in the course of that short period of time to working for David Jordan, the attorney who's representing the church. I cannot imagine any stranger bedfellows than David Jordan and Mike Norton. Here's David Jordan, the attorney representing the church, who is working hand in glove with new name Noah, the guy who sneaks into temples, records the temple endowment, 
and puts it up on the internet for everybody in the world to see. Yeah, it certainly seems like a a strange tag team. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure David Jordan is just happy as a clam that he was able to get a mole such as Mike Norton, who already had this established friendship with McKenna in order to do his dirty work, to do, frankly, things that David Jordan himself could not do as an attorney. Right. Absolutely. So I also want to say that uh, a year ago, when I was on the phone with McKenna, I remember talking with her and for whatever reason, I don't remember why the conversation led to this point, but I remember telling her, McKenna, I just want to make it clear to you. I don't believe your story because I trust you. I believe your story because the evidence supports it. And that's the way I've been all along. From the very beginning of this story, when it broke on Monday, March 19th of 2018, I was extremely skeptical. It was a crazy claim, being raped in the basement of the MTC by the MTC president. I mean, that is just an outlandish claim. And I was extremely skeptical of the story. I was very skeptical of the audio tape of Joseph Bishop. Not skeptical of its provenance or what was said in it, but of the interpretation that was being placed upon it. It did not seem to me to be as strong as other people were claiming it was. But as the time went on, piece after piece of evidence came forward to corroborate her story to a very high degree, to the point where not only did I believe that what she said was true, not because she said it, but because of the other evidence that came forward, I still believe that the evidence supports that something untoward and of a sexual nature happened between Joseph Bishop and McKenna Denson. And I'll I'll get to that in a second, but now we've taken it back to the beginning of things. And did you want to share some thoughts about that, Bill? Yeah. So I, I want to say, I just want to run through this story. And then I think essentially I will have said my piece, which is When this all first happened, same with you, what a crazy claim. Uh, My initial perception in listening to the audio was that Joseph Bishop is, as McKenna is interviewing him under an alias, trying to get him to admit to what what he did, is that Joseph Bishop says enough there. He's not admitting he raped her in the MTC basement, no. But he's admitting to enough immoral behavior that you sense like, oh my, this guy could be capable of having done that. He seems confused because it appears he understands in his own mind that there are multiple women that he has been inappropriate with. And so as you listen to the audio, you go, wait a minute, this could actually be true. Um, At that point, you did the interview with McKenna, the the two-part interview where you have her tell her story. Right, that was in July of last year. Yep, again, the evidence seems to be very in favor of, hey, she knew where the basement room was. Uh, She describes the basement room well. It's behind the two locked doors. There are things going on in the background that seem to lead, uh, seem to give credibility that the church is not, is so uncomfortable with this story that they are trying to to hide things or keep things out of the public view the way they're telling the story lends credibility to the church is involved here in a cover-up as you reach out and make requests for records records come back heavily redacted by the police department 
Uh, and you see how adamant the police department is in every instance where the church is a bedfellow with them on a case. You can see that the, that the police department is not acting appropriately. And you have some of that happening with the recent uh, judicial decisions that have come out in this case that have pointed at, uh, and you've noted this in episodes uh, recently, that have noted that the BYU police department is subject to grandma laws, which they have avoided. Uh, the heavily redacted areas point to something deeply wrong going on where the church is utilizing the BYU police department uh, inappropriately. So you have all this evidence, as you point out, which again, take McKenna and set her off to the side. Something isn't right here. And there is some truth to her story. Uh, so I agree with that. As I sat with McKenna at Sunstone, she was upfront about the issues that we had raised. One of those, by the way, was P.F. Chang and the razor blades. Uh, what I didn't know was I hadn't read the police report, and I didn't know that in that police report, they had chased down the police, that is. They had chased down all of these other accusations and had made notes on them. That I wasn't aware of. So as I'm speaking to McKenna at Sunstone with my wife and with some friends, she comes across as somebody who says, look, I've got a checkered past. I'm not hiding anything. Yep, that happened. Yep, that happened. Hey, by the way, this is going on. That's going on. Like she was upfront and she was calm and she was, uh, it seemed like somebody who was owning their history, somebody who was owning their past. You then have these recent episodes of the poisoned, poisoned orange juice the car on fire, the assault. And as those three events go public, my, my, uh, my radar goes off, my BS radar. And I'm sitting with these three events and I'm talking to you behind the scenes. I'm talking to my good friend, who, by the way, had just as these events were made known to him, he sends her these security cameras. And uh, as I'm having conversations with you and him, I'm expressing like, guys, I'm really skeptical. And you're agreeing. You're saying, hey, I'm skeptical too. This just doesn't feel right. My friend goes, yep, this just doesn't feel right. And so as we're sitting with those incidents, my skepticism grew to the point where I, I said to myself, there's still, there's still absolute evidence and credibility to important portions of McKenna's story regarding the basement of the MTC. And there is absolute credibility and evidence to the narrative that the church has uh, inappropriately and unethically uh, misused the BYU Police Department as well as their internal handling of this issue pointing to their being involved in a cover-up of, of Joseph Bishop and the abuse, uh, whatever happened, whatever that abuse is. And again, I'm putting my two cents in allegedly uh, that abuse is at the MTC basement. And, and so you have all of that going on. And yet, oh, wait a minute, I've got these doubts about McKenna and the story doesn't add up in terms of the OJ, the car and the, and the uh, assault. Now you fast forward to Mike. Mike Norton reaches out to me, reaches out to others several days ago. And says, hey, this is about to be blown wide open. Just so you know, here are the things that I'm finding. And as he shares the things he's finding, it goes above and beyond the list. Uh, you noted some of those, but there are others. She, she gets uh, 
assaulted by she claims two black men in a parking lot and then the next time around she says i only saw one of them but then some but then another person hits me over the back of the head so at one point it's two black men in the second instance it's one black man with a second individual who she does not know or see or describe hitting over the back of the head and then can i break in for just a second bill i'm sorry just so i don't forget that description unfortunately is remarkably similar to her description of her assault in the front yard of her house in early February of this year. That there was one man there, that she ran out to confront this one man, and then she was apparently attacked from behind by a second man that she did not know was there. Yeah, so you have a a second completely different claim that runs parallel to a claim in her past. So now you have two uh, drugged orange juices... You have two assaults by two men where one man is seen and the other man attacks her from behind. So she ends up being put into, and this is, this is the incident I was first talking about, where she's, she sees a black man uh, and then another person behind her hits her over the head. She's knocked unconscious. And then these two men, or maybe there's more, but at least two men uh, end up sticking her in her own trunk. And she ends up suing um, this place of employment for for having bad lighting and bad security outside. Uh, she has a history of suing everyone and anyone. She has a history of faking cancer. Uh, there are two different places of employment with multiple employees at both locations who say that McKenna claimed to have had cancer and solicited uh, donations from fellow employees for cancer treatment. We have another instance where uh, McKenna claims to have been diagnosed with cancer, tells everybody that she's been diagnosed, is then told by the doctor, she claims, she's told by the doctors that she's misdiagnosed and she actually doesn't have cancer, but then she doesn't go out and tell everybody that she first told she did have cancer that she didn't. Um, She's been caught shoplifting multiple times. The, The past becomes so inundated with... Uh, claims that are outrageous if it was just one of them it's outrageous and now at this point I think when you add these all up you're probably talking 30 to 50 instances of lawsuits allegations of assault or rape allegations of kidnapping allegations of cancer Uh, when you add it all together eventually so let me put it this way when I first was dealing with my radar going off. My conclusion was, look, something happened in the MTC basement and the church is doing a cover up. And I still believe that by the way. And I'd love to, I'd love to conclude the episode, maybe talking about that for a few minutes uh, when we get to that part. But I still believe something inappropriate happened in the MTC basement, just as you do, not because of McKenna. In fact, completely outside of McKenna, because if it was based on McKenna, I wouldn't believe it anymore. But based on the evidence, as you point out, I also, again, believe there was a cover up by the, there is a cover up and, and was a cover up by the church. And I believe that based on the evidence as well. What happened was I believed those things happened. But what I, what I lost faith in was everything else. And now all of a sudden I had to sit with my own biases. And I said, wait a minute. So there's these, uh, this event in the MTC basement that she's saying rape occurred. And there's, uh, this entire past, which says like, wow, in light of her entire past, this MTC basement, it it seems more rational and reasonable to just say like, oh, this is just another false claim she's making. 
And so I've had to sit for the last five or six days with my own biases and say, you know, is it, is it just my bias that makes me want to keep believing this one incident as a truth that sits in a bucket of a hundred lies? And, and as I've had to wrestle with that, here's my opinion now, which is that I no longer am going to safely assume that she was raped in the MTC basement. I don't know whether that happened. I still believe something happened, and I still believe Joseph Bishop to be guilty of immoral behavior and to have taken her alone into the MTC basement. The, the evidence strongly corroborates that. But I no longer can take McKenna's word where the evidence stops. And, and as I've had to kind of wrestle with her entire life, as all of these records are starting to come out and much of the details of them have been discussed recently... I would much rather shine a light on the truth. And so recently, I, and again, I know I'm going off here on a long tangent. Recently, I put up a post where I shared some of these points. And I put a picture of McKenna and I put a liar stamp on it. It's the reason I was excommunicated, was putting a liar stamp on Elder Holland. Because he lied on multiple occasions. And some other occasions we haven't even discussed yet where Elder Holland is dishonest. So I do the same thing with McKenna. And I label her a liar. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying she's lying about the rape. I don't know that anymore. I don't believe or disbelieve that. I'll wait to see what happens here with the evidence uh, in terms of her actual trial, if that actually comes to pass. What I am saying is that her past now is so bad, so full of scams and deceptions and dishonesty and accusations and lawsuits that I no longer can believe a single word she says about any event unless evidence outside of her completely corroborates that. And so now I'm going to sit here and say like, okay, I'm an ex-Mormon. I, I want the church to see its unhealthiness and I want it to improve. But at the same time, just like Mike Norton, I'm not going to do it at the expense of, of avoiding the truth. I've always wanted to chase the truth down. So, from, so whether it's McKenna, who again, I consider a friend, or whether it is uh, Elder Holland, whether it's Dallin Oaks, or whether it is some other progressive Mormon or deconstructed Mormon or ex-Mormon, I'm going to shine a light on the truth, and we'll just let the chips fall where they may. Fair enough. So let me go ahead and, if I can, if this is a good time, talk about my analysis of the case as it stands now. Is that okay, Bill? Yeah, please. Let's, uh, let's do it. Okay, first off, I have to give a little bit of background. There are two main branches of evidence in the law. The first is direct evidence, and the second is circumstantial evidence. Now, most people, when they hear the phrase circumstantial evidence, they equate it with flimsy evidence, but that is a complete misunderstanding of the actual term. Direct evidence means anything that a person directly observes by any of their senses. They see something, they smell something, they hear something, they touch something. That is direct evidence. When McKenna says that she was raped in the basement of the MTC by Joseph Bishop, that is direct evidence. So direct evidence can be very strong or it can be very weak if the credibility of the person making the claim is undermined as it has been with McKenna Denson. So that's direct evidence. Circumstantial evidence, on the other hand, is any kind of evidence that is not 
direct evidence. So circumstantial evidence, sure, it can be weak, but it can also be strong. In fact, it can be even stronger than direct evidence. A couple of examples of circumstantial evidence would be fingerprints, which we would consider to be extremely strong evidence, and also DNA is circumstantial evidence. You can see it's not direct evidence, it's not someone's perception of what happened, but it is scientific analysis of body tissue or material left usually at the scene of a crime, which can to a very high degree of probability identify the person to whom those bodily fluids or tissue belong. So you've got circumstantial evidence, you've got direct evidence. Right now, I am reading through a collection of stories about Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Conan Doyle. And just last night, I was reading a story I'd never read it before. There's a number of them that are very famous and I'm familiar with, and probably most of the audience is too. This one was called The Yellow Face. And I'd never read it before. And I think I understand now why it's not popular, but it's actually a very good story because it is designed to illustrate the difficulties with circumstantial evidence. And I won't go through the whole story with you, but basically uh, there's a whole bunch of facts that Sherlock Holmes is presented with in a certain situation. Strange things are going on by this guy who shows up at 221B Baker Street and becomes his client. And he relates them all to him. And Sherlock Holmes takes all of those facts and he comes up with a theory as to what is going on. And at the end of the story, he realizes and the reader realizes that his theory is completely wrong. This is one of those rare occasions where Sherlock Holmes gets it all wrong. And it was written for this purpose. And in the course of this story, he talks about circumstantial evidence. And he tells Watson, circumstantial evidence is a tricky thing. Because if you look at it one way, it appears to point with certainty to one conclusion. But if you step back and you look at it from just a little different angle, it's the same evidence, but if you look at it from a different angle, then it can lead just as certainly to a completely different conclusion than the first one. And so this whole story is designed to show that. And it's interesting to me because I think that what we're seeing with McKenna Denson and the recent shifting alliances of people who were formerly her ardent supporters to being anything but that, I think what we're seeing is to some degree, not completely, because there is new information coming forward from these police reports, but to some degree, we're looking at that. These people knew about the checkered history, but now all of a sudden, and I think Mike Norton illustrates this perfectly, now he's looking at the same evidence from a different viewpoint and coming to a diametrically different conclusion based upon what is mostly the same kind of evidence. So having said that, I have another comment that I need to make here, Bill, before I forget. And I think it's only fair if we're looking at all the evidence. This 2004 P.F. Chang incident, the police focused on McKenna. During this interview with her, they confronted her with the allegation that she did it herself. She denied the allegation. She ended up going and getting a polygraph test on it, which she passed. So she ends up passing a polygraph examination. Now, the police and the report, they don't like the guy that she used to do the polygraph test, even though I'm sure he's certified. Police have different kinds of feelings about different polygraphists in any community. This guy, they don't like so much. They wanted to come down to the station and have a polygraph with a police polygraphist. 
and her attorney didn't have her do that. I can understand why not, because if I were her attorney, I probably wouldn't have her do that either. I'd have her do it with a private polygraphist. Regardless of the police's view of the polygraphist, the fact remains that she did go to a licensed polygraphist, and apparently she did pass a polygraph that she did not actually put those razor blades in the cake. So this is something that just makes things all the more complex, all the more interesting from my point of view, because we have clashing facts all over the place. And we are at the point where there are so many facts against McKenna, but then again, so many facts on the other side that it is possible to argue opposite sides of the coin with a great deal of evidence. I don't know if I could say equally effectively, but at least effectively from both sides. So that's the first part I wanted to say. Any comments about that so far? Um, the, so what? You, what the, the, here's the trouble and the reason I'm stammering. Because when I look at her history collectively, I'm left with two choices. One is that she's a really good scam artist who has been deceiving people all through her life. From, from the age of somewhere in her 20s to present day. Or I have to believe that she is the unluckiest person uh, in the entire world. And maybe the luckiest because she's still here and she's still in relatively good health. Uh, but to be, you know, hit over the head by two black men and stuffed into a trunk, to have been misdiagnosed with cancer, to have been... Uh, sexually assaulted, raped on multiple occasions to uh, have been poisoned, to have been uh, assaulted, to have their your car lit on fire, to have uh, had someone sneak razor blades into your food, to have chipped a tooth on some chicken salad. When, when you add all of it up, you have this woman having experiences in her life that to get the same amount of experiences, we would have to randomly go out and probably find three or four million people to have those three or four million have the shared trauma and drama that McKenna Denson has. And as one who tries as best as possible and not perfect at it, at setting their bias and their emotion aside and saying, what's most logical, what's most rational, what's most reasonable? it becomes really difficult to say, yeah, let's, let's give her the benefit of the doubt and let's let, let her past really be, you know, she says it happened, let's allow it to happen. Man, that, that becomes a mountain that I'm going to be exhausted trying to climb in the first five minutes. Oh, I hear you 100%. And lest anybody forget what I said before, I feel like I need to repeat it throughout. It is apparent to me from these recent disclosures by McKenna of these recent allegations, coupled with the details that are in some of these reports, which I have seen with my own eyes and which I have right here in front of me and which I read from earlier, she has no credibility, by which I mean she cannot be believed that something happened simply because she said so. So having said all that, Bill, okay, and I want to preface my next comments with that, because it may sound to some people like I'm still trying to argue her case. And I am, but I'm arguing it from the facts, not from what she says happened. All right? So if I can make that distinction, let me proceed by asking you a question. All right, Bill? Let's say that McKenna Denson 
is the worst liar in the history of the human race. That everything that she has claimed before, all the allegations she has made, she faked, she knowingly faked, okay? That she knowingly made false claims, that she put the razor blades in the cake and ate them in order to sue P.F. Chang's, that she did all these things, that all these allegations about rape and sexual assault prior to, uh, all separate and apart from Joseph Bishop, okay? Let's bracket that for a second. But everything else, let's say all those things are lies, lies, and damned lies, okay? So we've got that set up, right? Now I've got to ask you this question, Bill. Are you with me? So far. Okay. Does that mean that McKenna was not raped by Joseph Bishop in the basement of the MTC in 1984? No, no, no amount of history, no amount of past deceptions eliminates uh, the possibility that she was raped in the MTC basement. And I'll add one more thing that knowing the details of this case, it seems apparent that Joseph Bishop would have been aware to some degree of the, of some of this checkered past in terms of the trauma. Again, most of these events happen after this, but to some degree knowing like this is a vulnerable person who's had different life experiences than the rest of us and has experienced trauma unique that the rest of us generally haven't experienced. And it actually may have made her the, the perfect victim for him to go after. Absolutely. So what I'm trying to do, and I appreciate that because, you know, there is a, a great deal of material and studies and research on the subject of people who are victimized at an early age. I think that we're all kind of familiar with the idea of the domestic violence abuse syndrome and that how women who are abused and manage to leave a relationship, though frequently they'll keep going back to the relationship and there's this whole cycle, which most listeners are aware of, but that they may leave the relationship but that frequently they get hooked up with another guy, it's usually a guy, sorry guys, but with another guy who is abusive. That there is some kind of dynamic going on that they are attracted to men or end up in relationships, repeated relationships with different men who are all abusive. So I think we all kind of generally understand that. Well, the research is that a similar thing can happen with people, usually women who are sexually abused, that they can end up in relationships where they are sexually abused repeatedly. And I don't know if there's some kind of signal that is sent off from people like this that is picked up subconsciously by abusers. I don't know that science has come up with an explanation for this, but I think the phenomenon is generally understood. So that is a possibility here. I don't think it adequately explains all of the allegations and all of the history, but it has to be taken into account. But for purposes of this analysis, what I want to do is not give her the benefit of any doubt, okay? Because I think that's the, the best way to proceed at this point. So I say that if she lied about everything that she's ever said, does that mean that she was not raped in the basement by Joseph Bishop? And as you respond, no, of course it doesn't. Because even the worst liar in the history of the world can be assaulted. They can be the victim of a crime. I usually ask this in rape cases in a different way. Prostitutes have sex with people for a living. Does that mean a prostitute cannot be raped? Right, and the answer is no. Yeah, because of course they can be raped. I mean, if it were otherwise, then the best way to prevent ourselves from being victims of crime would be to make false allegations against 100 people, and then all of a sudden we'd be immune from crime because nobody could ever victimize us. 
which doesn't make any sense. And yet that would be the logical conclusion if we believe that a person who lies about 100 people cannot be legitimately victimized by the 101st person. But as I say, we can't take anything that McKenna says for granted. We cannot believe anything she says because she has this history. So leaving it as a possibility now that she was raped by Joseph Bishop in the basement of the MTC, I want to look at the evidence. And the evidence I want to look at is not what she says happened at the basement. I want to look at the circumstantial evidence, which is why I spent all that time talking about it, right? Circumstantial evidence number one is that Joseph Bishop met with McKenna Denson repeatedly in his office at the MTC and talked with her about things of an inappropriate and sexual nature related to himself. The reason I think this is established is because McKenna Denson told the stories of what it was that she says he told her in that office. And the two primary stories that she related that he had told her had to do with number one, Joseph Bishop saying that he had a difficult sexual life with his wife and that sometimes she would wear a certain dress at dinner and she would pull down the top of the dress and expose herself during dinner, which is a very odd thing. And the other story has to do with how Joseph Bishop was at a spa or a hot tub somewhere with some other men, maybe general authorities, maybe not, but some woman comes along and takes off her bikini top and is topless. Okay, those are two stories. Now, McKenna Denson, in her audio taped interview with Joseph Bishop, tells him about those stories. Okay, she doesn't ask him, what, you know, what kind of stories did you tell me at the MTC? And he tells her these stories. She already knows the stories going in. And she mentions the one story about Joseph Bishop's wife at dinner. And he admits that that was true and that that had happened. And she mentions a thing about this uh, topless woman at the hot tub. And he says, yes, that happened. But he is lucid enough to correct her because she says it happened in the wrong state. Uh, she says Utah. He says it was Wyoming or vice versa. I can't remember which. But he admits that that actually happened. So the question naturally arises from circumstantial evidence. How on earth would McKenna have known about these incidents, these sexual incidents in Joseph Bishop's life unless Joseph Bishop had told her about them? And when would he have told her about them except in meetings in his office when McKenna was a sister missionary at the MTC back in 1984? So it seems to me that these facts show a high degree, a high degree of likelihood, almost to a certainty, that indeed Joseph Bishop was talking to McKenna Denson in his office about these specific stories. Otherwise, how would she have known about them? So that's number one. I think that the evidence is really strong that he was sexually inappropriate with McKenna in his discussions with her. We do know that the Spanish teacher of McKenna Denson at the MTC was contacted by law enforcement as part of their investigation of Joseph Bishop. And she remembered McKenna Denson and she remembered that she kept being called out of class. She didn't know why, but after what, over 30 years, she remembers McKenna Denson and she remembers that she was called out of class, which suggests that she was called out of class quite a bit. Otherwise, I wouldn't think you'd remember it after 35 years. It wouldn't stick in your memory. There are these pieces of evidence that corroborate what it is that McKenna is saying, at least in this regard. Now, the second thing 
is her knowledge of the room in the basement of the MTC. This is something that I do not believe most missionaries would know about. I was a missionary at the MTC for two months back at the end of 1979, the beginning of 1980. I sure didn't know about any rooms in the basement. I didn't even know there was a basement at the MTC. It's kind of like Pee Wee Herman in the movie, you know, about the basement at the Alamo. Okay, are there any questions? Yes. Where's the basement? Excuse me? Aren't we going to see the basement? <laughs> There's no basement at the Alamo. <laughs> he didn't know there was no basement at the Alamo. I didn't know that there was a basement at the MTC. And I think that that would probably be common to most missionaries. They've got no business being down in the basement. And yet, later in the week of March 19th, a former employee at the MTC, back during this time period, or shortly after this time period, comes forward anonymously, as you recall, to the press and reports, yeah, there was a room down there. And it matches the description that McKenna Denson gave of the room down there. And this person thought that he or she should come forward with that information, even though it was done anonymously. So that's another strange thing. Now, that's not as conclusive in my mind as the sexual talk, because McKenna Denson says that Joseph Bishop mentioned to her the existence of this room in the basement. Now, she says he mentioned it to her in terms of an invitation to go down there and see it, which she says she ended up doing. And that's where the rape occurred, according to her. It is possible that he simply mentioned the existence of the room to her in passing, that he had a preparation room where he went down to spiritually prepare and maybe watch videos of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir on the VCR that was in the room. That is a possibility. So there is an alternative explanation, which is reasonable as to how it is that McKenna could know about the existence of the room at the basement because she was told directly by Joseph Bishop without his actually having taken her down there. I mean, if he's going to be telling her about his wife at dinner and topless girls at hot tubs, there's no reason to think he wouldn't tell her about a special preparation room he has in the basement. I think it is more likely that he actually did take her down there, but there is an alternative explanation that is reasonable in my mind. So I think that there is definite evidence that he was sexually inappropriate with her, I think there is strong, though not conclusive, evidence that he actually took her down there to the basement. So the question then would be raised in the minds of people, if he's speaking with her sexually about sexual incidents in his office, and then he offers to take her down to the basement room at the MTC, which is extremely private, remote, and locked away from everybody else, why would he do that? Would that be simply to show her where he prepares spiritually and have a talk about the Book of Mormon and missionary work? Or would it be an effort to take the next step in what he saw as his developing relationship with McKenna and to put into action what he had only been hinting at in words up to that point? So there's those aspects of it. But there's more than that. The fact is, is that Joseph Bishop has had another complaint made against him by another sister missionary who was at the MTC when he was the mission president that she was sexually abused or assaulted by him in some way. And we know that because the church itself admitted it. They issued a first response, I think it was Tuesday, March 20th, the day after 
This recording was leaked by Mormon Leaks. And then by Friday of that same week, which I think was March, let's see, 19th, 20th, 21st, March 23rd, the church issued a second statement in which they admitted that they knew that there was a sister missionary who had made a sexual assault complaint against Joseph Bishop when he was the MTC president. So now everything is starting to look much different. And I'm not taking her word for anything you'll notice here, right, Bill? She has managed to accuse a man of sexually assaulting her that another sister missionary, apparently independently, I can't vouch for that, but another sister missionary back in, I think it was 2010, many years ago, had made this complaint. And remember, it was addressed by her stake presidency, who the church statement said then contacted Joseph Bishop. He denied it, so they felt like there wasn't enough room to go forward with a disciplinary action against Joseph Bishop. So there are other alleged victims out there. So what are the odds? What are the odds of this happening if McKenna Denson is just making this up out of whole cloth? Once again, to quote Elder Holland, I think that's very, very remote. And we also have to remember some of the things that Joseph Bishop did admit to. Now, he was adamant in denying remembering anything about McKenna or having done anything sexually and physically toward her when she was at the MTC. But he does talk to the police about another sister missionary. We don't know if it's the same one that was referred to in the second church statement, but a sister missionary who he had taken to his house, had given her a back rub, which is odd. And then it had gotten low and he was rubbing her on her buttocks and it had gotten frisky in his words. Now, that whole episode about his giving the back rub and his rubbing her buttocks is one of the things that has been deleted or redacted from the BYU police report because he told that to the BYU police. They wrote it in their report. And then when it was released to the press, they redacted that portion because they did not want that known. So there's all this stuff circulating about Joseph Bishop. And, you know, very much the same as McKenna's past is coming back to haunt her. Even at the time, and still in my mind, Joseph Bishop's past cannot be forgotten because he had difficulties before this. He had difficulties when he was, I think it was the president, was it of Weber State University? Yeah, yeah, where uh, employees accused him of being kind of creepy in the way he talked to them. So what we have here is a perfect storm of two completely uncredible witnesses coming together and we are left to try and pick up the pieces and hopefully what I'm trying to do is try and do this as dispassionately as possible to try and provide more light than heat to my analysis and see after we get rid of all the stuff where we have to rely on what these people say to be true. What do the facts themselves suggest? And I think the facts suggest that Joseph Bishop was sexually inappropriate in his conversation with McKenna, that even though McKenna cannot be taken at her word that he assaulted her in the room in the basement of the MTC, that it's quite likely that he did take her down there to that room, though not conclusive, but quite likely he took her down to the room, and that he has other sister missionaries, at least one, possibly more, coming forward to say that he did 
something similar to them in terms of sexually assaulting them. And he has his own checkered history. Just as McKenna has a checkered history with making multiple allegations of a sexual nature against men, he has a history of having multiple sexual allegations made against him by different women. So it's absolutely fascinating to me as an attorney because it's not easy to figure out. And once again, if you look at all the facts, I'm trying to winnow out the ones that I think we can reasonably rely on. If you look at all the facts, you can argue either side of this case completely convincingly. As long as you focus on your set of facts and discount the other facts or explain them away. So if I want to support McKenna, I can just say, look, all this other stuff, she has all these mental illnesses and look for any possible way to explain them away or to say, hey, they really did happen or they could have happened or they must have happened because, you know, this is what happens when people are victims of sexual assault at an early age. This all this stuff happens. There are people like that. There aren't so many of those now as there used to be before recent developments, but you could do that. And you can explain away everything on the other side. Or if you want to go after McKenna by the throat, then you focus on all the things that are against her and explain everything else away. But it's a situation where all the facts put together are a complete mess. And it's hard to make heads or tails out of anything. And that's one reason why I think a lot of people are looking at all this stuff and their mind is running in circles because they run from one side to the other and then back as they're trying to make heads or tails out of it. But what I've tried to do is to focus on those limited set of facts that I think we can speak to with some degree of confidence and say something happened with McKenna Denson and Joseph Bishop at the MTC of a sexual nature. It certainly happened of a sexual nature in my mind verbally and it quite likely, I would say, you know, I would say more probably than not, Bill, I could I could change my mind on that depending upon additional evidence, but I would say more likely than not, something happened of a physical and sexual nature between Joseph Bishop and McKenna Denson in his room in the basement of the MTC. What do you think of my analysis, Spock? No, I think I think as usual, your methodical approach brings some common sense to the conversation. As I've sat back and watched everybody is going to extremes. You either completely dismiss all of it, or you continue to believe her and dismiss the credibility issues with her. And the reality, as you pointed out in the very beginning of this conversation, it probably falls somewhere in the middle. What I'm struck by is if McKenna was just an ordinary person who had a parking ticket or two and pretty much nothing else in her past, I think this case would have been an absolute lockdown Joseph Bishop is guilty case because you can show enough issues with his credibility and enough evidence that something happened so as to essentially impose on a courtroom that Joseph Bishop in fact did what McKenna accused him of doing. In reality, she's essentially brought her own case to a crapshoot by having the credibility issues that she does. As you point out, we can almost prove, and and this is me, again, I'm not a lawyer like you, but in my mind, looking at the evidence, you can almost prove he took her out of uh, the MTC classrooms alone, he had private conversations and conversations with her and others uh, who were were seen as vulnerable, uh, that uh, he does take her down to the basement room of the MTC. 
that there are things inappropriate of a sexual nature throughout his past and that something almost assuredly happened with McKenna. But the trouble is we get to the last few minutes of whatever it was that occurred in that basement. And now you essentially have his word against her word. And I don't trust either one of them. Right. And that is the fundamental reason that she has undermined her case. And primarily with these most recent allegations. And I know we've talked about those before. But once again, the other things were somewhat hazy. They were in the distant past. We were willing to give McKenna a buy on that. But when they come up again, now all of a sudden, it's not in the past. It's front and center. This isn't something that she did once or twice or three times long ago. She's continuing to do it. And it just makes everything that was old new again and demolishes people's confidence in her credibility. So she she may, in fact, have been... Uh, poisoned. She may have had her orange juice poisoned with Drano by someone who broke into or or uh, entered her home without permission. That's that's certainly possible. It is possible that someone uh, put some kind of flammable uh, material on her car and lit it on fire. It is certainly possible that she came out of her home and saw a man and jumped off her porch. And then a second man uh, tackled her from behind, breaking her finger, messing up her face, breaking her nose, breaking her wrist. But the trouble becomes, as you and I have discussed throughout this entire conversation, is that it is now more reasonable, it is now way more rational, way more logical to say that we are just running into more of the same of what McKenna has done her entire life. Right. It appears to be a pattern. No, it doesn't appear to be a pattern. It is a pattern. All right. Whether it's true or whether it's not, it is a pattern. And that pattern serves to undermine her credibility. Let me back up here for a second and just tell you something, Bill. I represent a lot of people who are charged with criminal conduct. And it is very important to them, or at least to most of them, that I believe them. And I try and explain to them, look, whether I believe what you say is the least important thing in the world as far as your case goes. And they usually don't understand that. So I explain to them, it doesn't make any difference what I believe. What matters is what the evidence shows. So it doesn't make a difference if I believe McKenna. Right now, I could not take her word for any particular allegation that she has made because of her history. What matters to me has never been what she has said. What has always mattered to me is what the evidence shows. And I think I've just sort of gone over a brief synopsis of what it is that I think the evidence shows and why it is that I still think something untoward happened between her and Joseph Bishop at the MTC. The degree to which that untoward sexual behavior happened is really what is thrown into doubt by McKenna's credibility. Yeah, and I want to just say one more thing, and I, th- and I think I'm, I've essentially said everything I want to say, which is when I put a post out about McKenna, had the liar stamp, had my, my points of why I have moved from being an ardent supporter to being uh, completely wanting to distance myself uh, from her and from uh, her behavior is that I got feedback from lots of people who said, Bill, you're, you're diminishing the abuse, the sexual abuse that others who bring cases 
uh, you're diminishing like their their credibility. Like, like in other words, by attacking McKenna for what they saw as an attack, by attacking McKenna, you, Bill, are reducing the credibility of other victims of sexual assault. And on top of that, the same thing we've made the argument here, just because McKenna has a thousand problematic issues in her past doesn't mean she wasn't raped, doesn't mean she wasn't assaulted in this instance. And so, Bill, you should back down and simply let this thing uh, see the process through. And my response to that is that I have, as a, as a public voice, and as somebody who is aware, both behind the scenes privately, as well as watching all this data unfold publicly, I feel I have a responsibility to shine a light on um, the, the issue at hand, the truth that I perceive, to have conversations about it uh, in terms of the podcast or um, social media blogs. That and, and I'll say this too. McKenna calls me the day I put that post up. She says, I'm really, I was really surprised to see you do that. And she goes, do you understand that you're hurting, you're hurting the cases of other people who were sexually assaulted and who bring cases up both currently or in the future? And I told McKenna, it's the same answer I would say to anybody who says that. My responsibility is to shine a light on this particular case, to shine a light on the data that I'm aware of and the reasons for which I no longer trust McKenna Denson or believe anything she says. And whatever the repercussions are for other cases, whatever the repercussions are for for her case, if it ever makes itself into a courtroom, that is a separate issue. I'm not going to act in this particular instance out of fear of what the ripples are in other places. But instead, what I'm going to do is say, like, here's a particular instance. I'm going to shine a light on it. I'm going to discuss the repercussions of what is being exposed and talked about right now. And whatever the ripples in the water are going forward for everyone else and for McKenna, I'll let the chips fall where they may. What I'm going to do is simply focus on sharing the data, talking about what that data means to me, and we're all going to have to deal with repercussions of all of our actions, good and bad. I don't choose to do the wrong thing so that right things happen in the future. That would be a bad MO to operate out of. What I do instead is we try to do the right thing and we recognize that that this world is a messy, complicated world and that when we do the right thing, good and bad things happen. And at the end of the day, we're still responsible as human beings to try to do the right thing. And the right thing is to shine a light on McKenna Denson's life and to help people understand like, hey, for those of you who are sending money her way, for those of you who are loaning her an automobile, for those of you who are putting her on your couch or letting her sleep in your guest bedroom, my suggestion would be be aware of all of this, understand the data, understand the information, and and you make an intelligent, informed decision and whatever damage that does later on down the road, we'll have to deal with that then. It sounds kind of like your approach to Mormonism in general, Bill. Yeah, skepticism and and search for the truth, whatever the consequences are. Well, I want to just finish out this podcast by talking a little bit about the church cover-up of this entire episode. This has been my main angle on this story from the beginning has been the church cover-up and the different steps that they have taken in order to 
cover up the story, to shade the story, to try and spin the story in such a way as to deflect from them. And that is what I have covered in a number of episodes. It is what has led me to make multiple requests for documents from the BYU Police Department. And as you mentioned earlier, Bill, from the time that this happened back in March of 2018, when this went public, different people have made public disclosure requests of the BYU Police Department for unredacted copies of those police reports of their investigation into this. The first police report that was issued to the media was almost completely redacted. The press pushed back on that. They got a much less redacted version of the police reports in quick order from the BYU police. However, there were still substantial portions of that police report that were redacted. And by redacted, I mean blacked out so they could not be read. Now, it is appropriate to redact police reports to take out names or identifying information of certain witnesses or parties or people who should not have that name or address or information made public. But this was more than that. Complete sentences and even paragraphs were redacted in those police reports. And I'm not going to go through all of the entire history of this, but it went up on appeal to the Committee on Public Records in Utah, who affirmed the fact that the police did need to give the correct police reports and unredacted police reports to the parties who were asking for them. Then BYU Police Department appealed that up to the court system, and it's sitting in the Supreme Court right now, awaiting final briefing and argument and a decision. But since that has happened, recently now, the legislature took action and said the BYU Police Department is, as a matter of law, Forget what might happen in the Supreme Court. The BYU Police Department is now, as I'm speaking, as a matter of law, required to comply with the Public Disclosure Act of Utah, which is G-R-A-M-A, sometimes called GRAMA. And people now have, subsequent to that law going into effect, made requests to the BYU Police Department for an unredacted copy of the police reports. You provided a copy of that to me yesterday, Bill, And guess what? All the same redactions are still in place. Right. They're still playing the same cat and mouse game. The redactions that are in the police reports, now that they are subject to grandma by law, and they know they are, are exactly the same as they were when they were still saying they weren't subject to grandma. So this puts the people who are getting these still redacted copies in the position of, well, now you've got to go through this entire process again up to the chief of police, then when he denies it, up to the Utah State Records Committee, and then from there you have to go up to the courts. And frankly, um, I know this is getting a bit long, Bill, but I'll tell you a couple things. In Washington State, where I practice, there are fines associated with a government agency that fails to provide the information or improperly redacts information in public records that are issued pursuant to a public records request. There have to be fines. There has to be some hammer over government entities to get them to comply with this because government entities are not going to want to be transparent. So there has to be some kind of hammer. The deal is that in Washington, those fees begin to accumulate on a daily basis from the point in time at which the government agency should have released those documents 
or those unredacted portions of documents to the person making the request. So by the time you get it to the court system, those fees which accumulate at a daily basis for every day that they haven't complied can be and frequently are substantial. Now, that gives an impetus to government agencies to be transparent and fully disclose from the outset in Washington. I've read the Grama statute in Utah. Unfortunately, the Grama statute in Utah is not drafted in the same way. And in Utah, those fines, those daily fines against a government agency, do not begin to accrue until you are already at the appellate process, until you're already up into the courts of appeals. Now, it could be up at the Utah State Records Committee, I'm not sure, but it's way past this point. So in other words, in Utah, the way the law is drafted, it gives an incentive to law enforcement agencies or other government offices to not be transparent initially in hopes that people will just go away and not go through all the burdensome appellate process to get to the point where they actually have to start paying fines as a consequence to their lack of transparency. Yeah, it benefits the BYU police here to hold out until this uh, decision makes its way through the appeal process. Right, because they're not out any money. They're not going to be fined anything. They don't even have the chance of being fined anything until the party that's requesting goes all the way up to the Court of Appeals. And by that time, who knows what's going to happen. Their hope is that a person's not going to appeal it because it is burdensome on the person who has to go through all those processes and all those steps in order to get it up before an appellate court. So that's what's going on there. Bottom line, BYU police, and I think the LDS Church who owns the BYU police, is continuing to obfuscate and not want to be transparent, in short, to cover up what's been going on with the McKenna-Denson case. And I think that also continues to speak to their hands being not clean in this and that there is something that they're covering up. In other words, you don't cover up something if there's nothing to cover up. So it's obvious to me they're continuing to cover up, which makes me think, yes, there's something to cover up, which also tends to make me think there's something to McKenna's story. So once again, we get into the circumstantial evidence. The last thing I'm going to say is that After the law went into effect, making BYU subject to grandma, I submitted my own new grandma request to the BYU Police Department, which is requesting a full copy of the audio tape of the interview BYU Police did with Joseph Bishop. Once again, they continue to have this redacted police report, which is aimed at making it so people will not know that they actually did audio tape the interview with Joseph Bishop. That's one of the redactions in it. I mean, I know what's behind some of these redactions because I've seen alternate unredacted reports from different sources. They are continuing to try and hide the fact that they've recorded the interview with Joseph Bishop, which makes me think it's so that people will not request the audio tape. How can they request it if they don't know it exists? And they will not find what is in that audio taped interview with Joseph Bishop. I believe and have reason to believe that there is at least one bombshell in that interview. Otherwise, why try so hard to hide it? Yeah. And and I'll simply add to that, that this process is continuing to work itself through the appeal system. It appears, and again, we'll have to wait and see how this all unfolds, but it appears as if every step of the way, it is being reinforced that the BYU Police Department is subject to grandma. And I would expect that that's going to be the end decision when this finally reaches its conclusion. When that happens, everybody and anybody is going to be able to uh, request that document 
and have it completely unredacted with the exception of those names and addresses that would point to innocent people in the report. And once we have that, my gut tells me that we are going to be able to prove to at least beyond a reasonable doubt uh, in the public opinion that the LDS church unethically utilized the BYU police in a legal uh, proceeding to shade things and protect them uh, from both public opinion being negative as well as slowing down and withholding information that is pertinent to this case. That reminds me, Bill. That was the other thing that I requested, and that was probably the most important thing that I requested in this most recent request, which has not been responded to at all yet by the BYU Police Department. I will let you know when that happens. But I requested copies of any and all emails and communications within the BYU Police Department with people outside or inside the BYU Police Department regarding the decisions to redact the BYU Police Report. Right. So the... The BYU police, when this all unfolds, and again, assuming that they hold off until this appeal process sees its way through, the BYU police, everybody's asking for the police reports. But as you point out, there is also audio of the BYU police interviewing Joseph Bishop that is being treated as if it doesn't even exist, but it does. And there is going to be email correspondence between the police department and the LDS church, assuming, allegedly, that's, that's the hunch, right? That's Possibly. the hunch. Possibly. That, that, that exists. Yes. Um, and so yes. when this all unfolds, it is possible that there are emails existing between the police department and the LDS church where the church uh, spokespeople who are being the mediators for this conversation are giving a permission or are asking the BYU police to uh, redact things, hold back things, treat things as if they don't exist, ignore certain things. It's going to be interesting when this all unfolds. And, and for anybody who listens to this, I mean, there are already a ton of people who are on board asking for the, the police reports. My suggestion would be to join RFM and to also send in your own request for emails and for audio. Uh, and to not let those two things not be part of this conversation, because there might be stuff there that would blow the lid off this entire thing. Right. To me, that is the most interesting aspect of this, is what communications were made by whom regarding the decision to redact the police reports. Hey, Bill, this has been a great time. Are you done? Have you made out all the statements you wanted to make? I think we've covered all of it. Okay, great. Well, something you said earlier about people going to extremes on either side of this case and us trying to come down more closely to the middle, which is usually where the truth lies, made me think of a great closing song. It would be, I Don't Know Why I Go to Extremes by Billy Joel. What do you think? I say uh, play the music. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon. And Bill Real. Signing off the air.
sometimes. 